Welcome to Trailblazing Entrepreneurs, the podcast series from Salesforce App Exchange. In our podcast series, we chat to world-class entrepreneurs and founders and explore their journey as well as share practical insight to build successful businesses. I'm your host, Sandra Peignot, Director of the ISV Industry Business at Salesforce. And in today's episode, I'm joined by Chris Hall, who is a founder, CEO and chairman of the board at Binder. Binder is a digital asset management software company based in the Netherlands, which is where Chris joined us from today. So Chris, thank you so much for joining me today. You're the first guest of our season three. How are you today? Very well. Thank you very much. Excited, uh, excited to be here. So before I start, I was checking your Instagram page and oh my God, I went, when do you have time to work? I mean, I was reading it and it says, okay, you're an inspiring professional surfer, a MotoGP rider, an actor and a tech CEO. So I love that. So, you know, some people, they say they, uh, they live to work and other people work to live. I think you're certainly doing the other one. So tell me more about this. It, 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 that's more of a joke, but... Uh... I, I like to set my ambitions and goals really high. I would love to be a MotoGP rider. I was an as, aspiring windsurfer. Um, did a lot of competitions when I was young. So uh, that's more of a, a joke. But yeah, I have a lot of hobbies. I tend to get really um, ambitious with those as well. So plenty of, of fun things to do. I love that. I mean, you should have not told us that was uh, an inspiration. I, I would have. I was already in awe before we even spoke. I was like... Crikey, my life sounds really, really boring, Corey, to use. <laughs> so you caught the entrepreneur bug at a very young age. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about some of that and maybe how you got your first business ideas? Yeah, I, I think it was ever since I was a kid, really, uh, I was always thinking about different ways of making money, as my mum would uh, call it. Even when I was a kid, I was washing cars or trying to sell stuff and setting up little businesses. I was selling windsurf boards, uh, all kinds of stuff, really. So I, I had a lot of a lot of small failures, and I still do have a lot of failures before Binder, actually. Uh, so I've always been playing around with that. That's an important part. It's trying stuff and see seeing what works that eventually gives you results. It's not it's never overnight. No, I think uh, I would agree with that. So how did you pick yourself up? Because, you know, some people, they have possibly, they fail and they say, mm, maybe I shouldn't do that again. What kind of keeps you motivated to go through those failures? It's about not being afraid of, of risk. I'm not afraid of risk. I enjoy risk. I actually, I don't see the risk. I don't feel the risk. But a lot of people focus on what could go wrong. When I tend to look at the opportunity and, and say, well, what, if it goes right, if it does happen, look at the rewards. So often the upside is a lot larger than the, the actual risk uh, or the perceived risk. And I think people tend to just focus on what could go wrong rather than how to minimize the risks. There's nothing you can do to really remove the risk. Everything has risk. Uh, even if you, you know, if you leave your money in a, a, with a bank, that's a, a, a minute risk, right? They all have risk ratings, the banks. So everything has a risk. It's just acknowledging and understanding that risk and willing to bet on that. Like, you know, I would say in blackjack, if you get a if you get a good hand, you have to double down, even though it means risking twice the amount. You have to double down, or you shouldn't really play the game. So if you have a good set of cards, double down or don't play the game. 
Yeah, I think it's worth taking the risk for, for sure. So with Binder, you've had a, an amazing story. And I think, you know, you went from zero people to about 300 in, in a very short period of time. And then you sort of step into the CEO role. How did you make that transition between being an entrepreneur, that risk taker we just heard about, to being a CEO? How's that work for you? Yeah, I think it's an interesting question because that is a very tough transition. I, I'm not sure if it's a transition because I think... Uh, you have to be an and you can't do everything yourself. So you have to and be that organizer and enable people to sort of follow your lead and really enable them, give people enough freedom and empowerment to have that entrepreneurial spirit as well. So I, I think you never stop being an entrepreneur and you have to be a CEO at the same time, which is really difficult because it, it's about trying to control everything, but still letting everything go. And it's two different roles, really. And it's tough to juggle sometimes. And I think it's very challenging because, you know, when you're an entrepreneur, it's, it's about continuous change. Speed is everything, especially in SaaS. So having to always try and change stuff, always improve, always be the annoying counterbalance, the, the person saying, no, let's do it this way you have to play both sides of the table, I think. And it's, it's very challenging because, you know, it's, uh, it's not always, always a nice job. It's not always the, the, the answer people want to hear, but you have to sort of put the benefit of the companies first over what might feel right. So it's, uh, it's, it's always a very tough internal battle as well. Did you have both sides of you in you? You know, did you, you talk about the uh, forever innovating, always talking about speed and a few others. And then the other side, which is probably more about control, balance. I'm just using the word you just said. Did you have both set of skills in you or did you have to go to CEO school? Well, I, I think Binder was CEO school. Um, I don't like managing people, which is maybe why I've, I've been a successful CEO because I don't really manage people. I've, I kind of enable them to manage themselves. And that doesn't always work. Uh, I tend to look at the, the future and what to change to get there. And I don't like status quo. So if, it's, if everything's running smoothly, I'm not interested, right? <laughs> it, 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 I, I only look at the problems. And I acknowledged quite soon that the pitfall, the bottleneck in the entire operation would eventually be, be me, right? Because I'm, I'm just not the best organizer because I don't enjoy that part. So I think maybe subconsciously, I've always been moving towards a state that I could just let go and, and sort of have things run autonomously. And I think it, that's a gradual process, but I think it's important to realize that you can't be both people all the time. So for us, it worked that way, but I think it, it's important to acknowledge where your strengths and weaknesses are as a, as a leader and make sure you fill in those gaps. Yeah, because otherwise it will just break down. Yeah, I think uh, there's a theory about you tend to hire smarter people than you because you sort of recognize that there you have sort of gaps in your own self and trying to foresee where your own failures will possibly get in the way of the business. Is that what you sort of saying? Yeah, it's also as you mature, it becomes less and less about continuous change and more and more about execution and the, the quality of execution. So I think if... If you don't adopt your style from early stage to later stage, it's good to keep the momentum going. We were hiring at 
breakneck speed in the beginning, right? It was, it was crazy. And that takes a certain attitude, but you can't keep on doing that because at the end, if you change the plans every single day, people get sick and tired and, and they don't really have time to, uh, to solidify and commit. So I think it's, it's important to keep challenging and keep the momentum going and keep people on their feet and changing chairs and changing positions. At the same time, if you do that too much, it, it kills the company as well. So, you know, stress situations grow people and, and the story about the, the lobster in its shell, I think it, it grows through, it breaks its shell through stress. And that's how they grow. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, Poor thing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. So, so stressful situations actually create growth, but it's, it hurts. And I think especially in, in fast-paced growth, it's to be expected that, that there's going to be a lot of people changing positions. And that I think it's important to, to understand that from the beginning that the only thing you're sure of is everything will be different tomorrow. And not everybody can get used to that. So the more you prepare people, even before you hire them, prepare them, you know, you might be gone in a year. Uh, and that's a good thing. Getting people comfortable around this kind of continuous change. I think that's that makes the, the ride a little bit less jerky, maybe. That makes sense. And, and you talk about change quite a lot. And I think you seem to have had a, an uncanny way of detecting future trend. You know, you, you were one of the early adopter of SaaS, you recognized that, that sort of there was a future of software. You help shape what digital asset management is today. How do you cultivate that mindset of staying ahead and, and discovering trends? Is that in you or is that something you work on as a learning exercise? I think it's, it's kind of a blood type or a DNA thing. And the best way I think to, to share that, or it's important to share that kind of experience. Um, is to share the wins as well, to show everyone uh, you're working with. It might have seemed crazy, but if you actually stick to it, good things will happen and, and great results can happen. And once people start seeing that proof for themselves, they'll start following that belief and, and not falling into the trap. It's, it's always a lot easier to defend not doing something, right? It's always easy to say, well, bit too risky. Let's just keep it as it's going because I'm comfortable here. It's like moving to a different country, uh, which is always why, you know, I, I always enjoyed working with expats. They have that kind of mindset of, yeah, that's a big risk moving to a country you don't know and, and trying to find a job or trying to, trying to make it there. It's that kind of willingness to accept, yeah, it might go wrong, but what if it goes right? If people see that and experience that, I think they, they sort of adopt that, that way of thinking as well. Um, so it's it's important to share wins, and I think it's I've always been, I've always worn my my heart on my sleeve, literally, in fact, with the tattoo, and I think that helps inspire people to try that as well. Because I think deep inside we we all you know we're all afraid of change and we're all reluctant to change. That that's our instinct, but if you overcome that instinct, if the opportunity is there. I think people realize that it's worth it's worth taking a shot and, and failing sometimes because it's better than doing nothing. As I said, it's always easier not to do something. There's always a hundred reasons, very rational, very logic reasons not to do something. But yeah, if you keep on following that rationale, you never get anywhere. Um, and I think that's that's just inside a lot of people. 
It is. Diversity is what makes a great company, you know, when you have different type of people. And I guess, do you look for different people like you? Or do you look for completely different and opposite of you when you're building uh, your management team or your kind of executive team? No, it's a really good point, actually. You need the crazy people always questioning the status quo, right? You need people saying, well, isn't there a better way? Couldn't we do it this way? Couldn't we, you know, let's try this. You need a healthy mix. You need both sides. It's yin and yang, right? You need the people with that kind of rationale. And if you have too many creatives running around, kicking stuff around all the time, it's one big chaotic mess. If there's too much of a concentration on the other side, you know, it stalls. And it's difficult to keep that mix because quite often, if one side is outnumbered, it's easy to sort of find your, your friends in, in, in one camp. So if there's too much of a disbalance in that, then either it flips to one side, right? It flips to either you're chaotic or you're, you stall. So it's, it's, it's finding that fine balance and giving everyone a, a voice. It's not wrong to be for risk or against risk. You need both voices in the company, I think. It's, it's a trap, right? It's, it's very easy to get bogged down in that rationale and not change. And I think it's, it's, it's important as you grow not to become stagnant and not to rationalize all the decisions and to keep taking risks. Uh, look, look at when Steve Jobs came back to Apple, you know, he did some pretty, he forced some big changes that were apparently needed to keep innovating as well. So I think it's, it's really important to keep that balance in a company and, and that balance changes over time, which is good. I, I mean, arguably Tim Cook, he might've not been the most innovative Apple CEO, but he definitely added the most value. So it's, you need both, you need both sides of, of, of that story. Absolutely. So, right, I was looking forward to this question. So you mentioned your tattoo earlier. Tell me a little bit more about that. This sort of came about, we were about to close our Series A funding, our first funding round with Insight Venture Partners. And I, I wanted to mark that moment. It was, it, was a, it was a tough ride, it was a big deal. And you know we're a branding company, right? So. I remember the story of uh, how the, the logo came about and it, it, it's just been a fairy tale kind of story. And I wanted to make something special out of that to remember that ride for the rest of my life. So I decided to get a tattoo and um, right around the moment we were announcing the deal, that's when I showed the, the company the tattoo. It was just a, a fun thing to do and a, to show my commitment as well, to show that it's, it's special to me as well. And it's, it's, I appreciate everybody who's, who's been along for the ride. Yeah, it shows the authenticity as well of what, we're, what we've been doing. Branding is about authenticity and it doesn't get more authentic, <laughs> I think, than, 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 a, than a tattoo, I guess. That's pretty extreme. I mean, some people, they will go and buy champagne or, you know, even splash out on something. I suppose that from what I just, you know, heard from you today, that kind of a, a true reflection of who you are, you know, into the risk taker and doing something a little bit different. But yeah, I, I love this. So, and well, what happened if the logo changed? What are you going to do? You're going to get a second tattoo or what, what's the plan? Rebrand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Play, I have another arm. We have plenty of room left for <laughs> um, No, but I, I remember that the, the funny thing was when we were looking at WebDAM as an acquisition target, we circled around that a couple of times. And I remember having the first meetings in San Francisco 
with the former CEO back then. And it was, uh, it was early in the year, but it was already nice weather, of course, on the West Coast. So I was wearing short sleeves and we had this sort of secret meeting in a hotel. You know, I came in with my short sleeves and I, and I could see them sort of every now and then gazing at that tattoo. And then I heard back from, um, uh, from Bob later, I heard the story that it was super intimidating. They thought I was, they were like, this guy is crazy. He's, he's not going to stop. He's, <laughs> he's on a war path. So it sort of freaked them out, which was kind of a funny effect. I didn't realize uh, it was like war paint, I guess. Uh, it was a little bit intimidating, I think, for, for an acquisition target. So it worked. It, it was kind of a surprise it worked that way as well. Oh, that's brilliant. I mean, that, that is certainly uh, the best stories I've heard about commitment to a company. You should suggest that to Mark Benioff. And I'm not so sure, you know, whether we've got so many sort of Salesforce and so many logos for the company. You know, it's kind of uh, you know, end up with a very large series of tattoos. But uh, I think we should certainly uh, put that to him going forward. So um, talking about Mark Benioff, you're very passionate about SaaS and uh, you were kind of one of the early thinker, early uh, adopter of SaaS. Why is that? Did, did you recognize this as a future or you know, how did it come about? I always sort of try to see patterns in what's going on in, on, a, on a macro level. And I think what cloud technology was the breakthrough technology that enabled this new way of delivering software, which just made a lot more sense. But it was so out there back then that this kind of virtualization, people didn't really get it and they were afraid of it. So I always loved the idea of there's no cap, there's no ceiling with SaaS, right? If, if you build it once, you can have 10 customers, you can have 10 million customers. It's the same product, essentially. So fundamentally, it's just that limitlessness of the SaaS business model that really appealed to me. Once you get it ticking, it's unbreakable. It's unstoppable. It's like printing your own money. So I, I was always inspired by that. That always kind of tickled my, uh, my brain a little bit to, to build a machine, like a perpetuous motion machine, but a business. And, and that's always been inspiring to me, that kind of, that, that's, that's the tickle that's, that just I couldn't stop itching, I guess. And I studied Salesforce, of course. Uh, I, Mark is the grandfather of, of the, the godfather of SaaS. Yeah, I'm not so sure um, we're going to like you if you call him the grandfather. The godfather, yeah, I met the godfather. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I was pupil, I guess, uh, in that sense. <laughs> yeah, disciple. Yeah, disciple. Yeah, uh, yeah so it, it, it's always been a really compelling business model from, just from, from the basics. Once you get it working, it's unbeatable. And I think that's the, the really appealing part of it. But it's really difficult to get it get it ticking correctly. It's a difficult machine, especially in Europe. In the early days, we were disqualified from um, RFPs or tender requests or whatever. Uh, uh, we were disqualified from those because we were a SaaS company. And that sounds like crazy back then, but it was before the, the whole app store came along and, and the whole that whole ecosystem started ticking. So we had to put in a lot of blood, sweat, and tears to convince people, no, the cloud is actually more secure, more stable, more cost-efficient, more capital-efficient, but more importantly, more, much more innovative solution than doing it on-prem. So just really convincing, uh, especially enterprise customers, especially in mainland Europe, of the benefits of cloud and SaaS has been crucial, but it's been, yeah, that was a... a a tough thing to do, a tough thing to pioneer because 
I think most of our customers in the early days, we were the first SaaS contract they signed. So our contracts had to go through legal due diligence for months and months because they'd never seen a contract like that. They were used to buying boxes full of software. That's how, how they thought. And it was all done by the IT department. Those were the people buying the software. Nowadays, of course, people sell marketing software to the marketing people, but that wasn't like that back then. We had to persuade IT first of going, you know, going to the cloud. And that was, that was a tough transition for a lot of companies. That still is, I think. Is there anything um, you wish you knew at the time? You know, things reflecting back about, you talk about the hard path that you had to take to get to, to that. Was there anything, oh, gee, I wish I've done this, or if only I knew this then, because I'm thinking about what would be great advice to give to people when they're trying to break into new models? Yeah, I think it, you have to do things wrong. I think that the, the only regrets you really have is not making, it's not, I wish I never made that mistake. It's probably, I wish I made it, I just made it sooner. I just realized sooner, that's a mistake. That's the right way. So often it's not the mistake. It's the mistake after that, not correcting the mistake or not realizing it was a mistake soon enough. That's when the real mistake happens. And that's when the real damage happens as well. So again, it's, it's, it's more about agility. I wish I would have been even quicker on some calls sometimes maybe things would turn out differently. But in general, it's not the mistake that kills you. It's it's not realizing you made the mistake soon enough. I think that really creates the damage. And in SaaS, it's all about trial and error, especially in the early days. If you're trying something new, if you're if you're innovating, if you're pushing a new business model in a new market, or you're trying to create a category, it's all about making mistakes, daring to make big mistakes and just moving on really quickly. If you look at the, the success of uh, Facebook, for example, it's not about the perfect version of the app, right? It's about how quickly they could innovate. They push out a version every single week, almost. They push out new features on a daily basis and they see if it works. If it doesn't work, they strip it out and they try again and they move on. So they use agility to actually innovate. And they understand that, yeah, of course, there's going to be some things wrong, but you, you have to try very quickly and repeat that cycle of innovation. So I think failure is part of, you know, if, if you never fail, you never win as well. Uh, so failure is, is an important part, but uh, don't dwell on the failures. Just move, realize quickly that, oops, made a mistake, move on and fix it. There's, there's nothing wrong with making mistakes. It's part of getting there uh, is, is the mistakes. So no use in dwelling on that. So I don't regret any of the mistakes. I only regret maybe not seeing them sooner or acting on them even sooner. Uh, for sure. I was about to quote Britney Spears and oops, I did it again. But then actually I'm going to do it and show my age, but never mind. So um, so in 2018, you acquired a, a US company. Um, and actually it was nice to see this way around, you know, especially, you know, we're recording here from Europe, but, you know, we often see um, sort of US company acquiring European company. So tell me a bit about the, the, the process of acquiring a US company and were there any differences in the due diligence process or the actual acquisition process because they were US companies? Well, th this was my first, well, it wasn't my first acquisition, but this was a huge deal. This was a, a do or die deal. We almost doubled in size with that deal. So it was a very aggressive move, even for US standards, I think, to almost double in size with an acquisition to, to basically, WebDAM was, was our leading competitor, was the leading vendor actually in the US. And we had a strong foothold 
but it, it just made a lot of sense to accelerate our growth through acquisitions. And we had the right venture partner pushing that as well, because at a certain stage, if you're not looking at M&A, somebody else is. If you're not adding M&A growth to your organic growth, somebody else will be playing that game um, and you'll lose to that. So it's either eat or be eaten in SaaS. So it's sort of, yeah, if, if you want to be number one, you that's something you have to do really, realistically. It's high risk because most of, a lot of acquisitions, I wouldn't say most, but I think it's actually most, it's more than half of the acquisitions don't really work out. And it never works out the way you exactly plan it. So it's, it's a high risk, but even higher reward, uh, again, kind of option you have on the table. Uh, and it was very exciting to be able to do that as a Dutch company, indeed the other way around, because it, that the whole M&A scene, the whole investment scene, the whole VC world, people really didn't know what that was about. You know, that's five years ago now. They didn't really understand that. It wasn't front page news back then. It's only been the last sort of maybe six or seven years that even on newspapers, like news websites, that tech is a separate column, right? It has its own part. CNN has a tech uh, issue and the tech industry or the, the especially the M&A side of it or the investment side of it started to go mainstream. People started to understand what IPOs were. So, but it was a very big deal for for the Dutch market. It, it was one of the biggest acquisitions in, in software that uh, of that year. It was a very gutsy move because we, you know, we it was heavily leveraged. We were still growing at breakneck speed and it was risky because it, you know, there's a big risk of diluting that growth a lot of distractions, you lose focus, you lose momentum. There's uh, opportunity costs as well. You know, if you put your whole team on a deal like that, you're not working on other deals. We, we circle around that deal a couple of times. Um, when it finally went through, we, we, you know, we flew out to California, uh, spent, I think, two weeks in sort of a, a deal time there. And rather than renting out hotel rooms. We Airbnb'd a big, uh, big house in, in California. It was amazing with a pool and everything. So we had this kind of crazy crunch time, holiday-like setting, but it was day and night because of the time difference as well. And it was uh, yeah, a lot of late night, early morning calls with a lot of lawyers and a lot of you know, going through due diligence. And that was a very exciting time because, you know, anything can still go wrong to the very, very last second. It's really exciting right until that deal is signed. And I remember once it was signed, we um, we went into the office basically and said, hey, surprise. Uh, this was all arranged like the, on, the, on the day before, but we, we announced it and... Um, we, we had drinks and pizza with the new team, basically, and, it, and, and the rest is history, I guess. It was a, a really fun thing to do. And I think um, because we did it in a very authentic way, we went in there and I, you know, we, we said, you know, we admire you guys. We've been up against you guys a ton of times. This isn't a, a hostile acquisition. This is us two trying to join forces as brothers or, you know, as family moving out of the house because it was a carve out from a, from a public company, from Shutterstock. And together we can take on the big boys. We can, you know, together we can, we can really give Adobe a run for their money, for example. It was joining forces. That was kind of the mantra about this. It was an equal risk to all of us if it couldn't fail because we were betting a huge deal on them as well. 
as they might be, you know, nervous about an acquisition. Um, and that panned out really well. Uh, it's been a family ever since. Uh, um, and, and I think we've successfully been able to, to get the best out of both worlds, right? It's, it's a hybrid company. Uh, you know, hybrid means you're taking the best out of both worlds, right? Or you're trying to add the benefits of both, both teams into one. Uh, and I think we've been really successful at that. It's not only making the deal that's really difficult, it's what happens after that is, is really critical. And I think we've done a really good job in merging those cultures and trying to emphasize the benefits of, of actually joining forces and working together because there are a lot of benefits. Uh, there's a lot of differences, obviously, in, in, in culture and the way of doing things, but there's also a lot of benefits to that and a lot of learning and, it's, uh, and a lot of fun. I mean, everybody enjoys, there's, there's one advantage of being in Amsterdam and on the West Coast Everybody here in Amsterdam loves the idea of visiting a California office, right? (laughs) (laughs) Or Barcelona, for that matter, and vice versa. So we've always tried to emphasize that. We spend a lot of money on travel uh, in those days. That was a good idea to get people people excited about about a transition to being a, a local company, but now really a global player with a global footprint. I mean, you're living your dream. Think about it, right? I was looking at your Instagram page. You could make a film out of this. So you could actually fulfill your dream of being an actor, right? Because, you know, think about it. You kind of selling surfboards from the off, then, you know, making money, getting a tattoo, flying to the West Coast. Hi. Yeah, wait, wait till you see the, the videos and the pictures. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, um, if Netflix is listening, uh, I'm up for it. Wow, <laughs> you, know, you never know. You, you never know. You're certainly in the right place to do so. So just find your thought, Chris, on um, if you had your top advice for inspiring entrepreneurs, what that one word would be. There's only one thing to really, to one piece of advice is, is just go out there and actually do it. Because like I said, there's always a million reasons not to and a million rational people saying you can't. But that should be the reason you go ahead and do it anyway. It's not going to be a rational decision. It's not going to make sense. Still, just go out and do it. I strongly believe that thinking too long kills the idea and kills the opportunity. Especially in SaaS, you shouldn't spend too much time thinking. You should spend more time doing, learning from the mistake and improving. Because if you get that cycle down of just trying and not worrying about the risk too much, but just trying, that will eventually get you there for sure. But it's very counterintuitive. It's like riding a bike really fast, a motorbike. You have to flick the steer left to steer right. Uh, Very counterintuitive. It's the same in SAS. You have to make very quick decisions and not making a quick decision is, is the wrong decision. So just go out there and do it. You'll be fine. The, the, the negatives, it never gets as bad as you think it might be. And you'll always think of a solution, but you'll always get there at the end. So just keep at it and, um, uh, and just do it. And don't worry about the negatives or the risk. The rewards are there. Thank you so much, Chris, for chatting with us today. If you enjoyed today's episode, check out season one and season two in all the usual places where you get your podcast from. I'll be back soon for another episode of Trailblazing Entrepreneurs. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.